So today we continue in the sermon series called The Wonder and All This, and we're moving from the idea of friend, Jesus as friend, to the idea of Jesus as teacher. Jesus as teacher. So we're taking four different ideas of Jesus in the scriptures, teacher, friend, savior, Lord, and we're taking them apart and we're looking at them and considering what does it mean for Jesus to be teacher or friend or savior or Lord. Today we're going to do teacher. However, a reminder, Jesus is all of these things. And that is the wonder in all of this, where we get the idea, is that Jesus came to us as all of those things. But oftentimes it's hard for us to uh, kind of align with the fact that he is all of those things. How can you possibly be my Lord and be my friend at the same time? How can you be my friend and my teacher at the same time? And that is kind of the beauty and the complexity and the difficulty even in following Jesus. This past week, uh, to take it down to, to this level as personhood, I had a, uh, a simple conflict with one of my friends that's on the West Coast. As some of you know, Naomi and I uh, spent multiple years on the West Coast, and we still have friends out, out there. And my friend is going through some junk that he has both chosen and that um, his circumstances have spoken into that made him choose certain things in his life. And as we were talking uh, through this situation and where he's at in life, there was this question that really cut me deeply when he said, um, you know, I don't want you to pastor me right now. I just want you to be my friend. And the reason that that cut me deeply is because if anybody knows me, the whole uh, pastoral vocation thing, especially in uh, 21st century American culture, I do not vibe with. I might vibe with the biblical definition of pastor. But there was this idea that he didn't want me to speak any truth to him. That he didn't want me to consider something other than his own perspective and what was going on. And that he just wanted me in his definition of being a friend. He just wanted me to accept whatever was going on and be okay with it and keep my mouth shut and be part of it. There is something, as we spoke about multiple weeks ago, about if we are true friends with somebody, we enter into their what? Suffering. That to be compassionate means to suffer with somebody. And there is something uh, very keen in that with being uh, followers of Jesus and entering into somebody's suffering regardless of where they're at. But there's also this other thing that Christ is not divided. Like, again, as we look at these four different things, Jesus is all of these things. And in many places in our lives, we either uh, bifurcate, we divide ourselves, we don't present our whole self to people around us, we don't present our whole being in certain situations. And so in this area, I'm this kind of a, in this area, I'm a pastor. In this area, I'm a friend. And in this area, I'm a great dancer. And we separate all those things because all those things can't, pastors don't dance. I'm not a great dancer. I'd like to dance. But then when it comes down to home, when you're one-on-one with somebody too, I just want to encourage everybody, in the relationships that you have, whether superficial or whether um, long-term relationships, don't ask somebody to be less than themselves. And don't be willing to be less than yourself in that situation. That doesn't mean be a jerk. That doesn't mean uh, uh, be hard and press on things. But the idea of um, 
me and my friend going through this argument and trying to define the relationship, trying to do the DTR. Is that what it, is that what it is DTR? I'm looking at you, Trey. Really? Is DTR a thing? Hold on, hold on. And and as we're doing this, he had a different idea of friend than I did. And because of that, there was there was a conflict, and we kind of needed to get on the same page. And we're not on the same page right now. So I just ask that in your in your relationships with people, don't be anything less than yourself. Don't be a divided person or seek to be a whole person. Seek to be who you are. The fact that I'm asking him spiritual questions is not the fact that I'm a pastor. There might be something that plays into that vocation-wise, but I wasn't trying to pastor him. I was just trying to love him because in a friendship, part of what it means to be in a friendship is to influence one another. And to be open and honest and speak face-to-face or mouth-to-mouth. So as we grow in our relationships with one another, um, I'm not asking you to make a promise. But you are designed because Jesus is not to be this divided thing where he's just this teacher and just this savior and just this Lord and just this friend. But that you yourself, being formed into the image of Jesus Christ, are not to be a divided person either. And even if some of those places in you and in your soul are uncomfortable, like I don't actually like the fact that I think this way, or I feel this way, or I'm having compassion. I'd rather just stay out of it because it's a lot easier not to get into the messy places of people's lives. That the Holy Spirit might be calling you to even be more of yourself in Christ in those relationships. So I would ask of you as a brother in Christ to allow the grace for people to be who they are completely in their faith and in their doubt, but to also know that you do not have to give up who you are in that space. And I think, this is a theory, that when we are honest with one another and that when um, uh, the truth of relationship and the truth of the gospel is somehow foundational in our minds, that there can be some kind of life-giving exchange in the most difficult of situations, in the most difficult of relationships that we have. But if we're just going to put part of ourselves to the side, I, I don't know that, that God is calling us to do that as a general rule. Specific rule, yeah. Might be Jesus is like, you need to settle down with this a little bit and just breathe. And I get that. But I also don't want us to have divided hearts because as uh, the scriptures say that God has come to unite our hearts and not to section it off into these different pieces. All that to say is that as we think of Jesus as teacher, reminder that he's not just teacher, that he's friend and savior and Lord in all of these places. And uh, with him being in all those places, as we think about the blind leading the blind, that he is the one that truly sees, that he is the one that truly has sight, that he is the one that truly isn't going to take just a doctrine and say that's good enough, but he's actually going to want you to infuse it into your bones and live that out rather than just thinking the right things because he wants us to be a whole person. He's not just teaching us in the mind, which he is, but the mind always has to be transformed then into the heart because our mind and our heart are not separate things. Jesus says, teacher, this was the third lowest. We took a... Um, survey a couple months ago. So for the people at Cornerstone that took this survey, Jesus was the, the third lowest, or as teacher, 
was the third lowest, meaning that at Cornerstone, we most uh, connect with the idea of Jesus as Savior, and then Jesus as Lord, and then Jesus as teacher, and uh, Jesus as friend, which we talked about the past two weeks. In this, the, 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 the group, the demographic that was least likely to uh, predominantly view Jesus as teacher was actually those that were under the age of 21. So those that were under the age of 21 had the hardest time connecting with Jesus as teacher. The ones that most likely connected with Jesus as teacher were those that were between the ages of 21 and 35. 21 and 35. So today I'm going to uh, bring two texts to us for us to consider. I, I told the worship team this morning, I felt like what I wanted to bring for the message this morning was just to read the whole Sermon on the Mount, and that would have been the message. And we might do that in, a, in, in the beginning of next year, because we're going to go into another sermon series, I believe, about virtue and vice in Scripture, and what does it mean for us as people to actually have a gospel ethic. What does it mean for us to have a gospel ethic? So I think at that time we'll do that. So I'm not going to read that as my sermon, but we are going to consider what it means for Jesus to come as a teacher who bears witness to the truth. And what does it mean for Jesus to be a teacher who wants to grow character in his disciples? Which I would say are two of the primary characteristics of Jesus as teacher. But before we go into that, I want to ask you this question. Who are your teachers? And I want you to talk with uh, the people around you. Who are the people that influence your mind? And it could not, it, maybe it's not even people. Uh, it's always people to some degree. But maybe don't think of just in the flesh like Trey is influencing me. Trey is teaching me how to be cool and how to do selfies on Instagram and stuff. Not just that. I love picking on Trey. Um, you're the one that's set up front, buddy. Um, and, but who else, inf- what influences you? What influences you? Or what influences our culture around us? Try to be as broad in scope as possible. Also be specific. So if you're going to say something like, the news influences us, great. Let's name some channels, okay? Because just like uh, the body of Christ is very diverse, where we get our news sources here in this room is also very diverse. And we do not want to take... um, Uh, either uh, liberalism or conservatism as the gospel ethic, because it's not. It's not. And so it's important for you to hear where other people are getting their ideas and their news. Um, But think broader than that. So take two minutes. Who are your teachers? Who influences you? Think broadly, think specifically, and go. Don't get in fights with one another, though. Okay, so what were some of the answers? Who, our, who, who teaches us? Who are our teachers? Say that again. Spouse. Significant other. Uh Yeah, all the teachers at Cornerstone. Parents. Social media. That's a great one. Oh, say that again. Oh, that's a great one. Our histories teach us things. Uh, Peter also said the word 
the Word of God, the Bible also teaches us things. History was one of my big ones about how uh, our past often dictates who we are now, or we allow it to dictate who we are now because it's teaching us about, well, you're that person then, you're still that person now, and there's no change or transformation that happens, so just stay in that. What else? Okay, so we got Fox News, NPR, CNN, all BBC, I don't know all the different things. Social media is a big one, too. And then, obviously, our, our teachers um, influence us also. I, Trey's Twitter account influences me, <laughs> or influences Matt. Trey's like, I don't know, do you have a Twitter account? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, so we have all these kinds of things that influence us. Even if we think it's just information coming to us, the filter of information and how that information is presented to us is also teaching us what to think and how to think. And we as followers of Jesus need to be critical, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but of asking that question like, what is truth? And what is truth and what is fact? Do you have another one? It's just agenda or opinion. Yeah, And that's pretty confusing, right? When some of the authorities that we have trusted in the past, not to say that they were perfect by any means, but where there was something in the past that at least there's some kind of common ground foundation that I'm just trying to convey information and trying to take opinion out of it. That's what the opinion page was for. So that people know what's going on and then try to gather that information to come to uh, conclusions, try to come to at least the process of what's going in into that place. Who were some of the big uh, teachers in Jesus' day? Yeah, Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes. And so in Luke 6, Jesus uh, is talking about many things, but one of the things he says is, can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a pit? Disciples are not greater than their teacher, but the disciple who is fully trained will become like the teacher. This is both a positive and a negative statement, right? Because it depends on who your teacher is, if that's actually a good thing to be fully trained by them. Say that again? Right. All men have deficit. And that's not to say you should. <laughs> this is kind of weird for me to say this. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn from me or you shouldn't learn from one another. That's not to say that, right? Because then we can become super uh, isolated, ind- individualized, and we go super, super spiritual, where I, I heard this uh, all the time directly from the Lord, and I'm not going to consider your point of view or what the Lord might be speaking through you. And so that's a good point that we have to remember that we're all in this together, and to some degree, all of us in this room are blind. And yet Jesus came for multiple reasons. One of the r- reasons also was to give sight to the blind to help us to see more clearly. And it might be not until that day when he returns that we can actually see not just in a mirror darkly or not just in a mirror dimly, not just through this glass dimly. But there is still truth and the pursuit of truth that is necessary and important in our lives as followers of Jesus. And also a trust, as we sang about earlier, of trusting in Christ to be that non-blind guide. And so in his era, in his time, when he, was, when he walked the earth, um, 
these Pharisees were the big, the big heavy hitters of teachers. Where do you get your truth? Where do you get your interpretation of the scripture? Yeah, we have midrashes and we do this and that. So we should listen to what them they said. And yet Jesus comes and undermines their authority. Not the scriptures. He doesn't undermine the uh, scriptures. He undermines their authority. And specifically because most times they were speaking what they were not living. Where they were taking and they were twisting something that was in the scriptures for their benefit. And then Jesus shows up on the screen, on the scene, and says, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. So turn to Matthew 5 in your, in your Bibles. So being a disciple is a good thing. Everybody in this room is a disciple of someone or something. The question is, who are we giving that place? And what is our posture of spirit that is saying that I want to learn from our rabbi? Who are our rabbis? Isn't, isn't easy for me. Is my mic cutting in and out? When I took this test, um, Jesus was at the, uh, Jesus as teacher was at the towards the bottom of my list also because it's very hard to have a mindset about something and have it be questioned, where you think you know what the truth is, and like, well, this is how I knew God. This is how I know God, and so I'm good. I can be in a comfortable place, and then for Jesus to kind of like mess with that can be a hard thing to do. So uh, let's start in verse 17, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, as he's setting up uh, his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount a little bit more, what he's really going for and what I want you to keep in the back of your mind is that he is trying to develop a gospel character within his disciples and within Uh, the people that are listening to him. He wants to affect their heads and also their hearts. So it's not just about what we should do. When you hear these next verses of scripture, don't think about just what it means, what we should do, but who we should be. Because the Pharisees, in some regard, though they weren't, were doing all the right things. That their external righteousness was seen by all. And yet at other places in Matthew 23 and 24, it talks about how they are whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside, but have nothing but death on the inside. We don't want to be whitewashed tombs, right? So we're going, Jesus is going after the character of heart and of the mind. He's not going after caricatures. Like uh, uh, a Pharisee is basically a caricature where there's something like blown out of proportion. Look how righteous Dwayne is. And he has this big head. He has lots of thoughts. Oh man, he can do, I want to go to him and get some wisdom. There's this loaded portrait of, oh, there's something there. And yet within Dwayne, no offense, Dwayne, there could be this death inside of him, this death inside of me. None of us are perfect. 
All of us have this junk that we're still dealing with, but that doesn't negate the fact of maturing into the teachings of Jesus. And just because we hear Jesus say something that is rough, we don't want to go, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to be legalistic about that. Because that's the other thing. We're like, go back and forth between these two things. We go back and forth between, well, I don't want to be legalistic, so I'm just going to be kind of carefree about it. Or we become legalistic and we have this external righteousness that isn't about the, the transforming work of our heart and mind. Uh, this is a quote from somewhere, and I don't know where I got it this week because I was reading a lot, but this, these are not my words. This talks about the idea of having a carefree ethic in following Jesus. It says, someone might respond that it is enough to love God with heart and soul and to love my neighbor as myself. Then I can safely do as I want. I am free. But are love and liberty enough? Christian liberty is not the license to do as I want, but is rather being liberated to live within what the gospel requires. And love alone does not tell me what I ought to want and to do in every kind of situation. It still needs and surely wants instruction in righteousness of the sort that the gospel gives. And this hit me like a ton of bricks. Because if I was to err and lean into one side, it would be like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others. That is a great foundational baseline. However, there needs to be things that are built, a gospel ethic that is also built upon that. Otherwise, we, I, can kind of get into this where I don't actually know what my gospel ethic is. How do I follow Jesus? Well, I'm just going to, okay, but what does it mean in this crazy situation to love my neighbor? Besides just saying, I just need to love my neighbor. What does it mean to walk in freedom in the Lord and enjoy life and enjoy others while not going crazy in that place? So we don't want to be legalistic, and I also say we don't necessarily want to be carefree because if we're carefree, we actually become careless in how our ethics are are used towards others. That we do need to think about that, and that's part of the reason, part of the reason that Jesus came is to teach us more how to be human. Jesus is not trying to stifle our humanity, but Jesus in teaching us how to think in situations to develop this character, he's actually calling out the image of God in us where so many things have been put on that image that has shrouded it or twisted it or manipulated it that he comes and he teaches us so that we can actually be more human the way humanity is supposed to be in an ethic that is supposed to be liberated in an ethic that is supposed to be free that an ethic that is supposed to be loving but by his definitions and not just by our definitions. So as we read this text, these next uh, couple paragraphs, I'm not going to expound upon them. Let's just listen to the the words of Jesus. And I suggest that we uh, approach this passage as a gospel ethic that is concerned about character. Not in this idea of a loaded image of righteousness, nor in a carefree or careless skip through the meadows. Jesus in these places uses uh, language, hyperbolic language, to really drive home the point. Be like, oh, of course he doesn't mean that. That's just hyperbole. That's just this exaggeration of what he's saying. But he's using exaggeration to kind of combat the superficial mindset of it. So when Jesus uses hyperbole and exaggeration in these passages, you shouldn't take that as, oh, that Jesus. He's just being off the rocker again. Yeah, maybe we should not cut off our hands 
because we know that it's not our hands that actually cause us to sin. And yet he's saying something very specific and wants us to take that serious. That in his love for us and God's love for us, that he wants to develop this gospel ethic of character within us. Not this superficial duty um, that we can often play into. So let's read parts about anger and lust and oaths and retaliation and loving those that hate us. These are the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your guilt, sorry, your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, I I hope it's clear as we read these things that this goes both ways. Cultural context of uh, patriarchy is in play here. Same way as far as women lusting in their heart. Same thing down with divorce too. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body, rather than your whole body, be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body, which would go into hell. It was also said, so it's connecting back to this idea of lust, this time lust internally rather than externally. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him also take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, mature, as your Father, Heavenly Father, is perfect. The word of the Lord. So how did that make you feel when you listened to those words of Jesus? Were you like, oh, crap. Did you feel shame and guilt in some of those places? What was Jesus doing and trying to teach us about character, about trying to take serious uh, the covenant of marriage, of trying to take serious uh, the way we use or misuse people by looking at them? What does it mean for our words to be true and not just something that we have to, by this I swear and by that I swear, but for words to actually be true and to be known, oh, Trey has a character of truth that I know I can trust him just by him saying, yes, I will do that. And what does it mean for us to grow? Because can anyone earnestly say that we are perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect at this time in our lives? That we not only need Jesus as teacher to come to us, we also need Jesus as Savior to save us from all the different ways that we try to get out of this stuff. That our righteousness actually needs to exceed those of the Pharisees because it's a matter of the heart and, as the outflow of that, our actions. Not just a matter of the surface, but a matter of a gothic or a gospel ethic that is within us. And so Jesus, as the one that can actually see, has come to bear witness to the truth. And will we trust him that it is him that is bringing the truth about who God is and about our world? Let's flip over to John 18. So if one of the things with Jesus being our teacher means that he is developing within us this gospel ethic of character, not just of duty, but of actual transformation of mind and transformation of heart, Another characteristic of him as teacher is that he came to bear, bear witness to the truth, and he was willing to do that to the very end. That he was willing to take that to the grave and even past the grave. So the Pharisees, as you can imagine, didn't like what Jesus had to say. In general and specifically about them. And it says in the Matthew text of this story, as he's before Pilate, that part of the reason that the Pharisees, the the teachers of that day, handed Jesus over for crucifixion was because they were envious. Because they were envious. So we have these different teachers that are envious of other teachers because, oh, that person has more followers. And that means that they're not listening to what I'm saying, and so I can't get that... that, um, uh, that social income, the fact that I'm important because not as many people are listening to me and they're listening to Jesus now rather than listening to me. And so there was also this idea with the Pharisees of being envious teachers. And so they're handing him over um, to be crucified and they bring him to uh, Pilate who was uh, Roman government during the time of Passover 
he would come into the area because during the time of Passover, there was often a ton more people within the city, within the area of Jerusalem, because it was such a big feast. And so they wanted to make sure that there was more Roman authority there, that things didn't get crazy and get out of hand, and that riots would not break out, and that things could be relatively calm because of the mass amount of people. And so the Pharisees and the the scribes and other people hand Jesus over. And we're going to pick up uh, John 18, verse 33. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Uh, Trivia question. Uh, Does anybody remember what the Oxford 2016 uh, word of the year was? Close. Caitlin Borden with a point, half point. In 2016, due to multiple political issues around the world and a constant shift of how we perceive and interact, um, the 2016, at least one of the the 2016 words, was post-truth. Was post-truth entered into the dictionary. Usually in a political sense, but also in a cultural sense. The fact that something can be... um, and these words are messy, I get it, Um, can be objectively known and understood and be like, we don't care about that, we want this. And this isn't really anything new, but yet when it was at bigger levels of context and there was parts of the world that were choosing, like, you know what, the reality of the situation doesn't really matter as much as uh, what I want or what I desire out of the situation. And so post-truth isn't anything new, and we can even kind of see it in this idea here where um, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. Or he's like, this guy isn't a king, at least by the way that I'm thinking that he's a king. Was he a king? Yeah. But Pilate is probably like, oh, this guy is actually coming at this as a philosopher or some kind of teacher. He's not... I don't care that you say you're a king of Jews because you're like, what is truth? I came to bear witness to the truth, yada, yada. 
So Pilate knows, it says in the text, that I find no guilt in him. He has all the power to release Jesus, and yet he doesn't. In effect, he chooses to crucify the truth. He chooses to give up on the truth so that there's not a riot, so that there's not something that happens during his uh, stay in Jerusalem. And likewise, he goes to this custom. He says, you Jews have this custom that you can release somebody. And so he's choosing a custom over the truth in this situation to justify what is going to happen to this man. What happens with us when we do that? When we choose our customs as families, when we choose our customs as a church, a cornerstone, when we choose our customs uh, outside of these walls in the ways that we view life, and, I, and we say, I'm going to choose this custom that I'm accustomed to, play on words, rather than the truth that is before me, rather than wrestling with this truth, rather than being wrong, rather than doing what is right. And there's also this other thing that this passage speaks to us right now. I hear a lot um, in certain Christian circles right now about how the end justifies the means. I do not know that it is a gospel ethic that as long as we can get to the end goal, whatever and however we get there is okay. And here Pilate is using what? He's using the end to justify the means. He's saying, well, I don't want a riot. That's what's most important. Not the truth. And so we're going to go by these, this means of a custom and we're going to let it play out. Whew, there wasn't a riot. Thank God. Who cares that this guy got crucified that was completely and 100% innocent, especially from a Roman standpoint? He was guilty from a Jewish standpoint. The problem is, is that he was guilty by telling the truth, that he was the king of the Jews, that he was the Messiah. But they did not want to accept the truth of that. And so Cornerstone, as, as we consider this idea of Jesus as teacher uh, now and then coming up uh, next week with Matt, I mean, it's like for me too, this was like a really hard sermon even to think through because of the, the conflict and the confusion of truth in our culture, of truth in our own minds, of, um, as Mike and John said, like, who do I even listen to? And then we have these deep-seated things within us that are our customs that are really hard to let go of. Like, legitimately, they're really hard to let go of. And yet Jesus is saying, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And will we, as disciples of Christ, who are learning to be like our teacher, repent and be like, or even just be like, I don't know. And be broken, be like, Jesus, teach me how to live in this situation because I just don't know. And to be able to receive grace. We cannot follow Jesus' teacher if we're not willing to receive grace and if we're not willing to walk in repentance. It is impossible. Luckily, he has provided um, everything that is needed in this journey to be with him as teacher. Uh, does somebody have a bulletin? Can I use your bulletin tray? Worship team, you can come back up.
on the back of your bulletins. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but deliver him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. As we go to the communion table to remember this costly grace, um, again, I, I, I want to encourage you to um, receive costly grace, but to also extend costly grace in your relationships. To not divide yourself um, or divide Christ into these manageable sections, but to almost be overwhelmed in those places and enter into a place of trust by being overwhelmed. As you walk with certain people or certain people walk with you as you're trying to figure out the, conf- the confusing nature of life at time, we do want to extend grace and mercy to one another. But we also cannot throw truth out the window. And even if that's talking about truth, well, what is truth? Let's have that conversation. Rather than make a dogmatic statement of what is truth and then never follow up on it. But to figure out the the, the greatness and the wonder of who God is, of who life is, and how sin has royally screwed things up. As we go to the table today... um, Laura, remind me again who's 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 doing communion. Mike and and Tanya are going to be down here to serve communion. If you're new to Cornerstone, sorry, <laughs> Laura and Cindy will will be over here um, to serve communion. If you're new to Cornerstone, we take the bread, we tear it, we remember uh, the body of Christ broken, we remember truth broken. We dip it in the blood. We remember the new covenant that wants to write the law of God. Where? In our hearts. Character. A gospel character. And we remember the means of love uh, that um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enacted on the cross. There will be people for prayer over here, which is Mike Borden and Tanya. And if I could ask you, you can get prayer for whatever you want. I would invite you to receive prayer from them or to even pray in a confessional way of saying, I listen to these voices as my teacher rather than Jesus. And if you need like kind of like an outline, go through the Matthew 5 passage. I listen to um, hate speech as far as how I'm supposed to engage with those around me. And the only way to get a point across is to yell at somebody. I am taught by pornography what it means to be um, proper towards a woman or a man. The pornography becomes a teacher of how I see the people around me and what they are meant for. I'm listening to a teacher of lust in that scenario rather than Jesus. 
So at these places, whatever your thing is, possibly just have a confessional to whatever degree you're okay with that this is the voice I listen to because I keep going back to it rather than the voice of Christ, rather than the voice of truth, rather than the voice uh, of reason, rather than the voice of Jesus. Or if you need prayer for anything else, feel free. I don't want to box that in, but I think where we're at with Jesus' teacher, it's important for us to confess the other teachers that we listen to. Maybe, again, your teacher is a history that I cannot stop listening to this voice because I'm comfortable with it, even though it shames me and guilt trips me. So whether it's um, the truth of your words, whether it's lust, whether it's how you call people that are not like you fools, even if they're acting foolish, that's the hard, that's a huge, difficult one. What does it mean to have gospel character within us and listen to Jesus as our teacher? Communion over here, prayer over here, and we will sing uh, and worship during this time as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word towards us. Um, may we release any heaviness that we feel as we consider your commands, as we consider what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But let us not take your words any less serious. So help us to um, let go of burden and help us also to receive uh, the seriousness of the life of your words, how you come and teach us to be more human to love past cliches or one verse scripture references but to actually have flesh in the game and in your kindness God would you lead Cornerstone and would you lead us as individuals and as couples in the spirit of repentance that maybe we're different places where we just don't want to even seek for the truth because it's just so complicated that the truth came and sought after us first may we take May we take um, comfort in that. And may we take no comfort in blind guides. Help us to not um, be enmeshed with the kingdom of this world, but to be part of your kingdom. And yet help us to not like bail on where we're at in life. Like how do we listen in this culture How do we interact with one another? How do we seek your truth? How do we come to places of peace? Help us to trust you more as teacher. We confess that you are not blind, that you are light, that by you we see all other things. So we ask you as our rabbi and as our teacher, Jesus, to to walk with us or to call us to your side when we don't want to get up so that we can follow um, you who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for your love towards us. Speak to our spirits um, and also speak to the tangibility of the world around us. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.